Thanks to Kyle and the team for leading us in our worship of God this morning. Uh, as I've been spending this week focusing on this theme of uh, missions in my own preparation, it's just been wonderful to see how the songs that we sing so often, uh, perhaps we, we lose sight of the real heart behind them or the, the scriptural basis for them. And so it was wonderful to be able to sing some of those hymns this morning and uh, even the closing hymn you'll see flows very much out of the scripture. So would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter uh, 1, Acts chapter 1, and uh, we're going to just be looking at a couple verses in Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to jump across to, to Acts chapter 8, so we'll be reading that um, together as, as we work our way through uh, the message, but keep your Bible open in Acts chapter 1 and a finger in, in Acts chapter 8 as well. If you were here last Sunday, you will remember that we considered together what God's Word had to say about the theology of work, Uh, how rightly understood, how biblically understood work is the meaning of our lives. Uh, It is the purpose for which God created us in His own image, as we saw last week, to be His stewards, to be His stewards that work over all that He has created, to be God's vice regents, His representatives here on earth. But we also saw last week that in Genesis chapter 3, sin came into the world. uh, And with sin came a separation from God. A spiritual death entered into the heart of Adam and Eve. and, And God's curse of death and brokenness came upon our created world. So prior to Genesis chapter 3, there was no need for missions. There was no need for evangelism, for telling people about God, because Adam and Eve knew God. They personally communed with God each day as their creator, as he walked and talked with them in the garden. But after the fall, Adam and Eve and all their offspring were separated from God. God installed Angels with flaming swords to to guard their access back into uh, the, the tree of life, the presence of God. And so from then on, every human being was born out of fellowship with God, born as objects of God's wrath. As Romans chapter 1 tells us so plainly, we won't have time to, to read that this morning, but you can look at it again this afternoon. Then as we trace the development of human history through the pages of the Old Testament, we find that Paul's summary of of humanity in Romans 3 is not only accurate for every stage of history past, but remains the condition of human beings today. In Romans chapter 3 verse 9, Paul says, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this truth as expressed here by Paul in Romans 3, I think led to the the famous quote by John Piper, which is that missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship, the worship of God, doesn't. You see, contrary to what some Christians believe, we are not born basically good people. We are certainly not born as Christians. No, the reality is that we are born spiritually dead. 
We are born hostile to God. We are born acting out in accordance to the nature that is against God. And so by nature, you and I are certainly not worshipers of God. But rather, we are worshipers of self. Uh, We are worshipers of the things that God has made, the created things. And so by nature, because we are not worshipers of the God who made us, we are by nature under the wrath and condemnation of God. Now, if that's where the story ends, there would be no hope for any human being except a, a fearful expectation of judgment. But then the whole Bible from Genesis 3 onwards is a wonderful story of redemption. It's a a love story of, of God's desire and purpose to be reconciled to those whom he has created. A people whom he's chosen from every nation and tribe and language and tongue. Yes, even the All Blacks to be brought in and and reconciled into a relationship with God that is offered to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Luke's first book, his gospel, the gospel of Luke, is his account of the life and the work of Jesus. He's presenting the good news of Jesus to us clearly in his gospel so that we might believe and be saved from the judgment of God that is on us and be restored as worshipers of God. Now we come to Luke's second book, the book of Acts. And Luke's second book begins in Acts chapter one, verse one, like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." So the book of Acts is part two of Luke's gospel. It's the the record of the ongoing work of Jesus and the continued teaching of Jesus through the Holy Spirit uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven. The story of Jesus has finally broken into the, the spiritual darkness of the pages of history. It's a history where up until this point in Luke and Acts, only a tiny minority of people were truly reconciled to God. 
the vast, vast majority were a long, depressing story of sin and chaos and evil and deception and destruction and death. But then Jesus enters into our mess. He enters in as the light of the world, as the word of God, full of grace and truth. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He comes and through his perfect life of obedience and then his death on the cross, he breaks the curse of sin and death. He sets the prisoner free. He comes to heal and forgive and restore mankind back to God. He comes to accomplish God's plan of salvation for all who would believe in him. Jesus is the center of the whole Bible. Jesus is the pinnacle of the whole Bible. Jesus is the point of the whole Bible. And for every human being born in sin, born hostile to God, born under the wrath of God, Jesus is the turning point. The earthly trajectory of our lives and the eternal destiny of every human being hinges on what we do with Jesus. It's as simple as that. Without Jesus, we are enslaved to sin. We are spiritually lost in darkness. And we are headed to an eternity under the judgment and the condemnation of God. With Jesus, we are set free from sin. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are loved by God. We are adopted into his family. We are headed to this glorious eternity of joy and worship and service of God. So now you can understand why if Jesus is the center of the whole Bible and why our eternal destiny depends on what we do with Jesus, the last words of Jesus to his disciples on earth are in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Matthew's account of this uh, final commission of Jesus to his disciples conveys exactly the same emphasis. Matthew 28, the great commission. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the whole Bible centers on Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. And the reality is then that if every human being's life and eternity hinges on what we do with Jesus then the reality is un unless we tell people about Jesus, how will he ever become their turning point? Kyle read this passage a little bit earlier. Let's bring it up again. Look at Paul's logic. It's quite simple. Everyone, Paul says, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how can they believe if they've never heard about him? And how are they to hear about him unless someone preaches to, to them? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Again, writing to the church in Corinth, a a group of Christians just like us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. There's the, the turning point from someone who was an unbeliever to a believer. He says all of this, this entire transformation is from God, and he has the gospel who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then what? And gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When last have you said those words to anyone? I implore you on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. I hope I don't need to take more time this morning to convince you of the need for and the centrality of missions in the life of the Christian and the very mandate of the church. Last week, you'll remember, we considered the the cultural mandate from Genesis 1, 28, which led to the, the thesis of the sermon that work is the meaning of our lives. But today, I want to expand on that from Acts chapter to 1 verse 8 with with the kingdom mandate. There it is, the kingdom mandate. Work is the meaning of our lives because Jesus is the center of our universe. Without Jesus as the center of your life, indeed the center of your whole universe, work will become an idol which will ultimately draw you away from God. But when King Jesus becomes your life and your light, He sets us free to work for him and to represent him. And so all of our lives and all of our waking hours will be spent for Jesus, no matter what he has given us to do in order to represent Jesus to the world around us. Now what we see in Acts 1.8 is that our mandate to, to represent Jesus to the world, it has two dimensions to it. There is a local dimension in Jerusalem And then there is a remote dimension in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Our mission's focus this year has already been shown is home missions. The the various ministry opportunities that we have to be witnesses for Jesus Christ here in Johannesburg. This is our Jerusalem. And Shane this evening will be zooming in uh, a little bit more to consider how we are to be the witnesses of Jesus right here in Johannesburg, not just through the home missions of the church, but in every sphere of our lives and our work in the city. But for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to focus on this remote dimension of being the witnesses of Jesus, of making Jesus known in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we need to see 
is the crucial sequence of events which Jesus lays out for his disciples in Acts chapter one. Uh, Take a look at Acts chapter one, verse four. Jesus starts off by telling the disciples in verse four to wait in Jerusalem. And the purpose for this waiting was very specific. They were to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Again, verse eight that we've just read makes it clear that it is the Holy Spirit who will give them power. And the purpose of that empowering by the Holy Spirit is to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem where they were, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So we must understand that Jesus' command to them to wait in Jerusalem was not a command to stay in Jerusalem. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit and then they were to go and make disciples of all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. We see this confirmed at the end of of Luke's gospel, part one, Luke 24, verse 45. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer And on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Did you see the emphasis? Stay until, then go. Start in Jerusalem, then proclaim to all the nations. Now we need to realize that the the scope of, of this great commission of Jesus cannot be fulfilled by any single individual. Quite simply, if you are in Jerusalem, then you cannot also be in Samaria. If you are in Judea, you cannot also be in Papua, which is why we need to see this mandate as something given to the whole church of Jesus Christ to be actively committed to and and participating in. And notice as well that this is not just a geographical commission, it's also a generational commission. It continues from one generation to the next across the whole earth until Jesus returns. But this great commission is given to individual believers. Can't be fulfilled by any one individual, but it is given to individuals. The mandate to be a witness of Jesus is given to every single individual Christian. And Jesus clearly requires that we are to take seriously both the local and the remote dimension of being his witnesses both home missions and foreign missions. And so it's very instructive then as we follow the story in Acts and just perhaps page with me in your Bible from Acts chapter one as I just quickly take us through to chapter eight. You'll see that the disciples in Acts chapter one wait as Jesus told them to. Then in chapter two, we have the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as Jesus promised and the immediate result of this power from on high is that Peter and the apostles begin to boldly proclaim the gospel. 
Now, by Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the first 3,000 believers are added to the church in Jerusalem. But that wasn't a once-off thing, for as these Christians began to, to themselves then witness about Jesus, these newly converted Christians, they start to tell other people. We read at the end of chapter 2, day by day, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, the church had now grown to some 5,000 men. So if we take uh, women and children as well, probably a church of over 10,000 as they continued to witness to their families and their friends and, and their neighbors and their co-workers about Jesus. By the time we get to chapter 6, verse 7, we read these words, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So from a human perspective, everything was going splendidly. The church in Jerusalem was well into the realm of what we would call today a mega church, 10,000 plus, thousands coming to faith in Jesus every single year. There was wonderful fellowship as you read the book of Acts. They were caring sacrificially for the needs of one another in the church. Week by week, there was powerful preaching and teaching under the apostles. There were miraculous signs and wonders being done among them. They were given great boldness to, to proclaim the name of Jesus. And even when we read about opposition, about the apostles being arrested and locked up in prison, well, an angel of the Lord came and broke them out of jail. What an amazing time it must have been to be a Christian. Until we get to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. When a man called Stephen, a man full of the grace and power of God, is brought before the religious leaders of the day. And chapter 7 tells us that Stephen is accused of certain things and he then faithfully witnesses to them about Jesus. And hundreds of them are converted. No, that's not what happens. Chapter 7 tells us after faithfully witnessing to Jesus, he is stoned to death. Now we're not sure of the exact timing, but theologians estimate that between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 8, anything between 5 and 10 years have passed. 10 years of blessing, 10 years of growth, 10 years of relative peace and prosperity as the church continued to grow and grow. And then this happens. Why? Why would God allow such a terrible thing to be done to Stephen? And not just Stephen, we read in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, a great persecution broke out against the whole church in Jerusalem. Where was God in the midst of this terrible suffering of his people? Why did God not stop this horrific persecution? We'll turn to Acts chapter 8 verse 1. There we find the answer. Acts 8 verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Did you see that? 
as a result of this great persecution, where were they scattered? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that ring a bell? Ten years earlier. Ten years earlier, Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Ten years had passed and where were all the Christians? Still in Jerusalem. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? He said to the disciples and those that were listening, you are the salt of the earth. The problem in Jerusalem is that the salt was stuck in the salt cellar. And so in Acts chapter eight, a great persecution breaks out, a persecution intended by Satan, certainly, and his earthly agents to utterly destroy the church. But instead, God intended, God purposed this very persecution to shake the salt out of the cellar. The salt of Jesus is scattered abroad as the witnesses of Jesus now flee to Judea and Samaria. By the end of chapter eight, the gospel has already made its way all the way down to Ethiopia. But let's not romanticize the, the pain and the suffering of this time for we read in Acts chapter eight, verse three, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The word used for Saul ravaging the church means to lay waste to the church. It can be translated as wreaking havoc with brutal cruelty. It's actually the language of a wild animal savaging its prey and tearing it to pieces. That's the description of women and men dragged off into prison, given the opportunity to deny Jesus, and if they did not, they were put to death. And what was the result of this terrible persecution? Did the church shrink? Oh no, it scattered. And as it scattered, it grew. Now look at verse four. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What Jesus commissioned his disciples to do back in Matthew 28 and Acts 1 verse eight was finally beginning to take place. You will be my witnesses, he says, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the word preached there in verse four is not the normal word for preaching like you are hearing it this morning. That's the word caruso in the Greek. It means to declare. Now the word used here is the word, the Greek word euangelizo, from which we get our English word to evangelize. It means that wherever they were scattered, they evangelized, they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. One commentator says this, the church finally breaks out from the confines of the city and the angels dance in heaven. This was God's plan all along. This was always God's purpose on the earth. Right back to his covenant with Abraham was to redeem a people for himself from all the nations of the earth. And so while the disciples who had all this good news about Jesus and they were stuck in Jerusalem, they were missing the big picture 
of what Jesus had commissioned them to do. Listen to how Bruce Milne uh, summarizes this. He says, it's a common error among the people of God in every generation, not least our own, to lapse into the belief that God is really not as concerned for worldwide evangelism as some of our more earnest brothers and sisters. But, he says, such is Luke's God, such is the God of Acts, the God whose entire purpose for this planet involves the global spread of his message of salvation. Accordingly, Milne warns, if we have lost sight of the clear biblical reality of this, that we may discover to our discomfort, as did the believers in Jerusalem, that God is perfectly prepared to treat our personal schemes of domestic security and self-fulfillment and financial aggrandizement and career development with a cavalier disinterest if they stand in the way of realizing God's heart concern for the spread of the gospel through the world. Time for a pause. Don't know. Let's try, try one more time, Daniel, otherwise we'll swap. He goes on, he says, further, if God was prepared to countenance or to approve the destruction of the church in Jerusalem for the interest of an expanded mission, then we have cause to fear for our little Jerusalems today. By any standard, the church in Jerusalem was a great one. It was apparently a church which had everything. Powerful God-anointed preaching, great local evangelistic effectiveness, rich and devoted fellowship, miraculous Holy Spirit gifts, amazing sacrificial stewardship, powerful prayer ministry. And yet, in the end, God blew it away. Why? Because the church had lost sight of a lost world. It's a lesson which has been repeated again and again over the centuries. On my recent trip to Mozambique a few weeks ago, one of the pastors who was attending the, the training asked the missionary, what must I do to grow my church? To which the missionary answered, pray for persecution. Now, you might not think that that's great advice, certainly not comfortable advice. But if the church of Jesus is stuck in our Jerusalem, is stuck focusing all the time and energy and resources on how we as a church can become more comfortable and more secure and more prosperous while ignoring the lost beyond our suburbs and beyond our province and beyond the borders of our country, then we are in a dangerous situation when God may need to come and shake our salt cellar. Tertullian, the early church father, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This came out in one of the songs we sang earlier. And this was not only true of this period in Acts, it continues to be true of the church throughout Christianity today. Again, Milne says, one need but contemplate the miracle of the church of Jesus Christ in China today to see this truth etched in present history. What was estimated as a Christian community of between one and two million in China in 1949 
when the revolution of Mao Zedong fell on the nation, and, and not least upon the church, today is a Christian community of anything up to 100 million. So as we look around at, at all the blessings of Honey Ridge Baptist Church, have we perhaps become a little bit too comfortable in our spiritual prosperity? Have we lost sight of God's heart concern for the spread of the gospel to all nations? Have we perhaps not lost sight of the lost? It's not that our Jerusalem, our Johannesburg, is unimportant to God. We see that the church was scattered but the apostles stayed behind. Surely not every single Christian left Jerusalem. There was much more work still to be done for those who could not leave and others who needed to be saved in Jerusalem. But if our Jerusalem becomes too important, then we are becoming disobedient to the Great Commission to be the witnesses of Jesus in our Judea and our Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So should we be praying for God to send persecution? I don't think so, but we certainly should be praying for God to help us to be more obedient. Remember what Jesus said before he ascended? Let me just put together a couple of the, the gospels into one here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you are a Christian here this morning, you have become a disciple of Jesus when you heard the gospel and believed in him. You received the Holy Spirit at your conversion whose divine power equips you to be a witness for Jesus. You have received the command of Jesus to be his witness and his ambassadors in this world and you have Jesus' very own great and precious promise that he goes with you and before you to make him known to a lost and dying world. Everything Jesus says there, you and I have in Christ. So what are we doing about it? Remember I quoted Piper earlier who said, missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, it's focused on, on the lost out there who are not worshiping God. Well, let me end by paraphrasing Isaiah to, to look more at the heart motive for missions, which aligns with what Piper says. So giving me a bit of pastoral license here, let me summarize Isaiah chapter six. When worship exists, missions happens. I think this is exactly what Kyle mentioned earlier, that missions flows out of a big heart for God, or a heart for a big God. If you go to Isaiah chapter six, you see there that Isaiah had this amazing vision of Jesus with angelic seraphim worshiping Jesus with cries of holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah initially was overcome with great fear, guilt, trembling because of his own sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. But then he comes to understand the gospel of God's grace 
as his sins were atoned for? What was then the first act of worship to God? It was missions. Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? To which Isaiah immediately responded, here am I, send me. So yes, God may sometimes need to mobilize his church to missions through persecution. But that is not God's preferred method. No, the greatest motivation for missions is always the worship of God. Our personal worship, awe, amazement for the love of God to us in Jesus Christ, which desires nothing more than if I love Jesus so much, if I worship Jesus so much, I want everyone else to know him and worship him too. And so we step out in obedience and faith and we say, here am I, send me. Let me bring this a little bit closer to home. Every single one of you who wore a green and gold jersey last night or this morning, who jumped up and down and shouted for the bocker, who has spoken so eagerly about their victory to everyone you saw this morning, you are a witness. You're an ambassador for the Springboks. Consider the lengths that you and others have gone to this week to identify yourself with the box. Flags and banners and watch parties and even expensive trips to Paris. None of us can say this morning that we don't know what it means to be a witness to or an ambassador of another. Now here's where it's hard this morning. If you and I can get so excited, so passionate about 15 grown men trying to chase a ball over a line, how can we not be on mission for Jesus? Something is wrong. But if you are on a mission for King Jesus this morning, I presume that that is mostly in your Jerusalem. That's great, carry on doing that. God has many people in this city who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. We need to tell them about Jesus, don't get me wrong, but also can I encourage you this morning, don't get too comfortable. Always be ready to listen to the voice of the Lord who may call you even today and say, who can I send? Who will go for us? And may your love for Jesus, your passion for King Jesus, your worship of him drive you to respond immediately, fully, wholeheartedly. Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning that you are a God of mission that you are a God who did not leave us in our sinfulness and rebellion and rejection of you. But in a sense, you were the first missionary God to send out your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just to come and tell us about salvation, but to actually accomplish salvation for us. 
Yet he came to those who were his own, and his own did not believe him. Humanity rejected him, and yet to those who did believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Lord, what a privilege we have to be Christians this morning. We are so proud today to be South Africans. How much more proud should we be to be Christians? Not because of anything we've done, but all because of what you've accomplished. To go and make your victory, your victory over Satan and sin and death, to make it known to those who are lost and dying. Oh Lord, forgive us for being so small-minded, so earthly-minded, so caught up with the things of this world that we have lost sight of the great privilege and calling and purpose for which you created us and saved us, which is to be your witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Johannesburg, in Gauteng, in the broader provinces of our country, in our neighboring nations of Mozambique and Zimbabwe, Malawi, Botswana, Namibia, and further, and even to the ends of the earth. Lord, may you stir in us before we appeal for a, a heart for missionary or a heart for evangelist. Won't you stir in us a heart for yourself, a deep love and worship and appreciation for yourself and, and a deep concern for the lost. And then, Lord, as you call, may we be ready to say, here am I send me. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.